Hi, and welcome to Talking to Artists, a casual weekly conversation where artists share their inspirations, process, challenges, and business ideas to give art lovers and aspiring artists a peek behind the curtain. I'm Kate Taylor, full-time Canadian artist and your host today. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning and welcome to episode 26 on the 26th of Talking to Artists, a podcast designed for artists, for art lovers, for art collectors to uh, understand some of the motivation that goes behind the creativity that artists have to create, but also a little bit about the business of what we need to do to actually get the work out there. So today my guest is going to be Lori Ryerson and we're going to wait to have her join. But in the meantime, I just wanted to talk to you about a couple of really important things as we are now one month away from Christmas and a few weeks away from Hanukkah, to really think about, although your gift shopping is going to be really different this year, having to kind of work online, really to try and consciously uh, buy local. So that could mean buying through the handmade market. There's a number of really amazing artists and artisans there. The one of a kind is online right now. Um, I'm actually launching the PI, Pi Art Squared show, which is rounds, which will happen a week from tomorrow, or even just your local stores, your entrepreneurial organizations that are one-offs. If you could just try and support them, that would be great because then we will all be here next year. So anyway, so I'm going to see, it looks like here, Lori has requested to be in my video. I would love to have Lori in my video. Just wait for her a little bit. I'm shooting from my cottage today again in isolation. Oh, there you are. (laughs) Hi. Hello. Well, Can you hear me? Hey, you know, if, that, if that's absolutely, yeah, if that's our biggest tech challenge, then we're golden. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I warned you. And the one thing you didn't tell me about was clean your screen. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're right. That's important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, truly. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate Good it. Good morning. <laughs> Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. Yeah, because I mean, I love, I love, certainly love the work, which is always really important part of it. But I think that, you know, we kind of met prior to the art life together in more of a business life together. So I'm always interested in artists who have made that transition from, you know, a full-time corporate world and then kind of the hybrid and then moving on to, uh, to something that's kind of just following your passion. So maybe we can start off. I just wanted to give an introduction. Obviously, you are a, um, a landscape photographer and kind of go from everything to super interesting macro flowers to huge giant icebergs and everything in between. So I don't even know how to kind of categorize you, except that to kind of say that there's a certain grandeur in all of your pieces, which I just really love. But maybe you can talk a little bit about your own work. So thank you. What inspires you? Um, Well, it's funny when you say, you know, I I don't know how to categorize you and, and someone that I was dealing with in one of my one of my tribe in another country. And he said, well, I, I just don't know how to categorize you, Lori. And I said, well, if you ever figure out, would you let me know, please? Because uh, <laughs> this is, well, it's actually a bit of an issue because gallerists don't know how to promote my work because I don't just shoot one thing. And I, and I think I kind of take the word from Joe McNally, who is a, a massive photographer who I adore in the United States. I first became aware of Joe years ago. He did a, a huge project after 9-11 where he photographed all of the uh, the first responders. And Joe is a brilliant photographer. And he always said he preferred to refer to himself as a generalist because he didn't ever want to lose a gig because he because he didn't 
fit in the box. So I don't do that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so for him, it was, you know, I, I like to follow that tenet. So I do shoot everything. I, I, I often tell people that I'm an opportunistic photographer as long as there's... <laughs> Well, as long as there's something in front of me that provides me with some interest, why why wouldn't I photograph it? Yes, well, you know, being a <laughs> being a travel and landscape photographer in a time when we can't go anywhere, <laughs> this is what we call NCM, not a career move. <laughs> so. Yeah, mind you, it's it is definitely it fits nicely into that opportunistic photography piece of it, where it's like, yeah, I think I'm forced to go to the desert because I have to shoot, you know, and it gives you an amazing opportunity. <laughs> to get your shit yeah. together and get to the desert or the Antarctic. Well, but, unfortunately, you know, I can't. Yeah, I can't get to the desert right now. Yeah. I have. I I have to go to. I've been using this time actually as a, an opportunity to to work in Canada. I've always mm -hmm. said to people, oh, you know, Canada will always be there, and I never, never, ever once figuring that there would be a pandemic. I mean, who the hell ever works that into, you know, into their business plan? Oh, yeah. what will I do when there's a pandemic? <laughs> when there's a pandemic, this is my bucket list. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, I'm, I'm using that time right now to travel around Ontario to go to places in Ontario that I haven't been. I just actually last week spent a week in a, in a hut in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's kind of an Airbnb thing, and they used to store a, an airplane in there, so it was in a, somebody's old hangar oh, wow. uh, in, at, the, at the edge of a forest, and I just went driving every day. Will I have anything to show for that? I don't know that I will, but that wasn't really the point. The point was to get out, to get back with being with nature, which has you know, become kind of important to me, well, more you, so than the business. But role. don't you think you sometimes don't always know what you have until sometimes later? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of imagining it, you know, it's a little bit, sure. my uh, photography is a bit like painting that way where you're so involved in the doing of it and the thinking about it and the intuitiveness of it. Sometimes you don't really know what you have until you kind of step back. It could be a day later. It could be a few days later. It could be weeks later by the time you actually look at your negatives, right? Or, well, I guess not negatives anymore, your files. That's okay. There's still I don't, I'm an old photographer, so I'm still <laughs> always like negatives, dark room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, and one of my most favorite shot, the thing that I did with the train when years ago when we were on the, the Rocky Mountaineer across Canada, I was on a family trip. And one of my favorite shots from that is I was shooting down the side of the train. That's uh, a cool shot. Yeah, yeah. And okay. So you know that shot. Yeah. And yeah. Honest to God, I, when I, when I took it down from my camera and I was looking, I'm like, what the hell is this? What did I, what was I thinking? What did I shoot here? And I'm looking at it and I, I finally clued into what I had shot and I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. So yeah, you, you don't know, you don't always know. And even sometimes, you know, peeking into the back of your camera going, did I get the shot? Did I get the shot? It doesn't matter. You get it home and it looks like trash. And, and the one that you know, where the camera was jumping around and suddenly <laughs> yeah. you've got an intentional camera movement piece that looks really hot. Yeah. So yeah, you, you just, you play with it. You play with it that way. Well, and I think, I guess it's really the, the creative process in my mind too, is something that comes, obviously you have to have the technical skills to make it happen, whether or not you're a painter, a photographer, a printmaker, whatever. But ultimately the magic comes in that intuitive piece of it. And so I find that sometimes if I think too hard about a piece or I plan it too much, it just doesn't have the right energy. And I think that's the same with photography. And the energy comes through a little bit later because you've got that delay a bit. But 
Well, and a part of the, the, the being an opportunistic photographer, again, I always say to people, I don't tend to go out with a preconceived shot in my head. Oh, today I'm going to go out and, and, and shoot, you know, and shoot that, that, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily happen. I'm, I'm in awe of the photographers who can, you know, people like Laura Moore, who has a concept in her mind and she goes out and shoots with an idea to create a story Marissa White, people like that, who actually, they're, they're conceptual photographers, they do composite images, and I love their work. But I, I, well, yeah, no, that's not the way that's not the no, I have, I don't have those skills. No, but, I, but I think, but you, but you do your own thing, right? Because I know that one, having sat, been beside you for many outdoor shows, I've heard your spiel. But I think one of the things too, that it's really important for people to know, is that the shot that is on the wall is the shot that was taken, right? And so there isn't a lot of manipulation and stuff like that. And I think that also is there's a certain amount of purity and beauty in that. Well, I wait, I always say I go out and I wait for the stories to tell themselves to me. I keep my mind open. I keep my eyes open. I'm out walking in the forest and there's a configuration of trees that put me in mind of something and then the light is coming in just such a way and that's the story right there it's not Mm -hmm. something that i went out to deliberately seek it was a story that made itself known to me that's the only way i can describe the way that i do that i think there's some of the the work when you're out there as i was mentioning earlier intentional camera movement is something i've been getting into when I'm shooting around Ontario right now, that's a landscape that's really well known to, to the people who live here. So how do you, how do you shoot something like that and bring your own voice to that conversation? Put your mark on it. Yeah. Yeah. That hasn't a story that hasn't been told a thousand times. You know, I could shoot the CN tower. There's going to be some guy with a lens this big, who's going to do a way better shot of that than I am. But how can I bring something to that conversation? A lot of times it is the intentional camera movement or something like that or multiple exposures or just farting around, really. Yeah. So I've, <laughs> I've, no, I've noticed with your work, though, in the last few years, you've been much more you've more geared towards kind of the nature and the nature shots. And, and like I said, some of them very grand and some of them with the intentional movement, very intimate and small. Whereas you used to do almost more like derelict, like you would travel to places that were derelict and the cars that were in the woods, you know, that had been abandoned and stuff. Is there kind of, has COVID kind of driven? I oh, know you were doing this before COVID. So what's kind of created that movement for you? Well, to find those cars in the woods, you had to get out in the woods. <laughs> so, <laughs> which was, which anyone who knows me, that's not, that's not my natural location. Well, I, I was, was going to say, I'm a bit surprised that you were in the middle of the, this cabin in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, oh, really? Wow, you must be really desperate to get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was that. The nature thing has come to me later, later in life. There's no question about it. I mean, I grew up as, as... <laughs> as many Jewish kids did go and be in summer camp for, you know, 10 years of my early life. And I hated it. But in my, in my later years, I appreciate the quiet. Uh, The quiet is something that I always go look for the nature aspect of it. I mean, you don't get, you don't get death Valley in your backyard. You don't get 
Moab is not available to us here in Ontario, but the Rockies are, you know, Banff is that kind of the Maritimes. The Maritimes are, are fabulous for quiet and being out of doors. I still find the cars. In fact, I found one last week on somebody's lawn. It was really, <laughs> I love it. I can't wait to print it. You <laughs> go up to the cottage. Our cottage on the drive up, there's quite a few collections of massive cars. Yeah. Well, the, but the part of the thing with the cars was I was doing a show one day, one of the, probably Riverdale, and I heard somebody say, oh, oh, I know her. She's the woman with the cars. And I thought, no. No, no, I don't just shoot cars. Don't, no, don't, don't label don't do that me as to the me. car lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, as I say, getting to those places made the, the nature thing more important. As I'm moving into more of that road, I'm meeting more photographers who are uh, part of that. In fact, there's become a, a rather, it started in the U.S., it's becoming an international movement right now. It's called Nature First Photography. So you have, you and I have talked about these people who go out, yeah. you know, you, you have sunflower season or you have the poppy season or something like that. People yeah. go out and they all want their Instagram shot, right? They, this, the selfie crowd who must get that shot. And what and they, they love gets destroyed. Yeah. 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 And so the field gets, the field gets trashed and it's not just poppies and it's not just flowers. It's places like Iceland. Iceland is a community, is a, a beautiful, it's one of the most exquisite places I've ever been. They don't have the infrastructure. They have 300 375,000 people and two million, two and a half million visitors last year. So it's a country we are wow. loving to death. And so the Nature First Photography movement is about respecting, first of all, well, there's, there's seven core principles about it, about learning where you're going, respecting the environment, leave no trace, you know, don't, don't break a branch to get your shot, just move your damn body, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's stuff yeah. like that. So that's, that's because we, we accept the fact that because of some of the images that we have put out in the public, we as, as a group of photographers have to take some ownership for having created the want. For people, who, yeah, so for people who want yeah. to try and reproduce that or go and see it for themselves or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I know I saw that really, really years ago, not necessarily for photography, but when we were in Pamukkale in Turkey and it's this calcium cliff. So the whole cliff side is white and these turquoise pools have formed naturally because of the calcium springs that come from the top of the mountain. So we back, went back a few years later, you know, there's been hotels have been built on the top and they siphoned off all the water. So of course the cliffs went all brown and gross and the whole thing was destroyed, right? And so they eventually, now it's a UNESCO heritage site and they put it back to its original, but it's taken years for it to go back. But it's kind of like that whole concept of loving something too much until you destroy it. Well, they're, they're lucky that they could put that back. There's so many areas that, that can't, mm -hmm. it's just not going to happen. You know, we spent... <laughs> millions and millions of years creating these things and in you know just a few hundred of them humankind has managed to you know destroy destroy them so, yeah yeah that's not a good thing <laughs> no so on a happier note though <laughs> i would you know i would love to actually hear more about your trip to antarctica because i knew you were going and i knew you were planning to and then covid kind of hit around that well i was sick and then covid hit at the same time so i never really got to hear about the details of what sounded like quite an amazing unique experience 
It was an incredible experience. Did I actually go to the Antarctica this year? Holy you know, it's so funny because as I was saying that, like, I'm pretty sure she went in January, but it feels like so long ago now. <laughs> it feels like it didn't happen. I actually heard about this virus that was going around. The gentleman who was the lead photographer, it was a, a National Geographic photographer who was sort of our, our head guy on the trip. He was the only one of us who was actually allowed to have daily email because his wife is a physician. And, and he was, he came to us sort of about halfway through the trip and he said, oh, there's some really nasty flu or virusy thing going on in China right now. My wife is doing all this. She's an epidemiologist, blah, blah, blah. That was the first I heard of it was on this boat. And then I came back and, and just, you know, everything hit the fan. But so yeah. I was at least able to get the whole trip. Uh, it is still the only place on the planet that is safe. I got very close to being infected. Somebody was, was coming down there and, and found out they were positive and they put the kibosh on that. So, so far they've managed to protect it. The trip, it started years ago. Years ago, there was a woman that I knew who had talked about going on a research trawler in the Antarctica. And that was about 10, 10 or 15 years ago, before I was even into photography or anything like that. I still always have loved to travel. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, God, I wish I had the balls to do something like that. You know, wouldn't that be amazing? And so a few years ago, or two years ago, I got an email from her. So now she's a runner, and she's super fit, and she, um, <laughs> she's amazing. Uh, and I got this email from Candace saying, hey, I'm booking on this trip. It was a, it was a, a trip for runners, okay? They were doing, they're doing a marathon in the Antarctica. Wow. Yeah. That does not sound like fun. <laughs> and, well, and certainly not for me. I mean, thank God you can only see me from the neck up here because I am not a fit person. But but she sparked it again. God damn it. She got, she got me going again. My, um, my primary want from that trip was that I not travel the Drake Passage. The Drake is one of the worst patches of water on the planet. You can have clear as glass or you can have 30 foot swells and, oh, and wow. yeah exactly so well I you wanted, don't want to pay that much money and be seasick the whole time right and spend four <laughs> days with your head in the toilet no yeah not fun. so so i found i wanted a smaller vessel i didn't want you know i didn't want a, a big cruise ship because those are not geared for photographers i wanted something that was photo specific etc so i found a small boat there were 12 of us wow <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a 65 foot sailboat we did wow. not cross we, we flew over the drake passage and then met the boat down there and like did you have to helicopter or were you in these little tiny no planes? we actually we had the little the little bush planes and funny enough they are mainly uh canadian pilots who fly over the drake huh. passage because they're so used to doing rescues and flying out in the, the guys from Calgary. A lot oh, of guys so cool. uh, from, from our West Coast, you know, search and research guys go out and, and fly those planes. So we went down there and we picked up the, we flew over the Drake Passage. You still, it can still affect air traffic. So you basically are told you're flying on this day and be ready. <laughs> 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 and then from there, anything can happen. Right. We were fortunate the plane did take off. We, you know, we got there on the day we were supposed to, 
picked up the boat. So there were five photographers and four crew members on a 65-foot boat for 12 days. There was a one patch of water that we did hit for 28 hours where we had to make the big crossing between the Antarctic Peninsula and coming back to land. We spent probably 15 to 18 of those hours lying on our backsides in the middle of the boat for the least. <laughs> really? Oh my God. Yeah. That <laughs> Holy was, cow. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it just, there was no way to stand up. There just right. was no way to stand up during that passage, except for the guy who was captaining the boat. And he, he's been around the world 11 times. And apparently he's one of, he's one of Ireland's top sailors. He was phenomenal. So it was getting down there. I mean, talking about, you know, nature and respecting all of that. There were extraordinary protocols that are involved in traveling in the Antarctic. And, I, and it warms my heart in a way to know that they're doing this. For mm -hmm. instance, if we, we would, so we're on the boat, we get off, we go on our Zodiac, we go on to land. Before we get back and playing with penguins, and that wasn't shabby either. I'm not. That sounds lie. so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're about half my size, okay? <laughs> oh, the nice, good little ones then. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the huge small ones. ones. Yeah. <laughs> the pocket penguins. <laughs> yeah, pocket penguins. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Teacup penguins. That's a whole new thing. Uh, Don't encourage so... that. <laughs> <laughs> So we would, when we would come back to get on the boat, the first thing you'd have to do is there's a wire brush and you have to brush your boots off in the water. Then you get into the Zodiac. Then when you get back on your own boat, for us back on the sailboat, we would have to step into an antiseptic bowl to wash the boots off again. And then the boots do not come into the cabin. So there were real protocols involved about not moving it from island to island. So you would take no species, no plant species from island to island, no avian diseases from island to island. Actually, the night before we got on the boat, we were we had a meeting with the, the tour people and we were all had our clothing inspected and anything that had Velcro on it, like closures. We were given high powered vacuums to go over all of that. Our boots were inspected. Wow. Before we, yeah. So that talk about you know respecting nature. They mm -hmm. you have to you have to when you're down there. What and you would you would love it. It would be right up your palate, frankly. Uh, yeah. No, no. I mean, if you the saw turquoises and yeah. Well, it, yeah. The colors, the textures, just phenomenal experience. I I don't see a lot of sailboating for me in my future. But I'm I'm certainly glad that I got to experience to experience yeah, the closest the closest I've been is years ago we went did a cruise to Alaska, but then we took a helicopter ride into the glacier, and and there was I think yeah there was like five of us or something with the helicopter pilot which was really really cool. But I was just shocked at the number and hues of different blues and turquoises and stuff in the ice, and uh, yeah. and just that. Yeah total quiet except for the dripping of the water because it was starting to melt a little bit and it was just really quite a I don't know serene experience for sure it, it's as you've heard me say often it's me and God and the wind and when you're when you're out on the water there might be some whales certainly the sound of the sound of penguins laughing is is not something <laughs> that should be discounted <laughs> Even even in my search for quiet, uh, you know, the sound of a penguin uh, yeah. is, is pretty okay to deal with. That's a so. different noise, though, right? 
Yeah. And, and you know what? You know what's so cool? What? So anybody who's a bird watcher will probably think, oh, yeah, sure. But the thing is, they have different voices. So when we were, there's different kinds of penguins. We saw a lot of the Gen 2 penguins. And then we very specifically went to a community of Adelie penguins. And uh, they really, you, you hear the difference in their voices. It's a completely huh. different timbre. It's a, a, a different octave. It was it, just such a notice. And you're thinking, well, penguins, they all, you know, penguins all sound the same. No, actually, they don't. <laughs> I wouldn't have the experience to know one way or another, actually. <laughs> and so how do you, I mean, I, I just have to ask, because I'm just curious, how do you actually you know, I'm assuming that you're, it's the Antarctic, I'm assuming it's cold, you're bundled up. How do you actually physically set up your shots and take your shots and plan that in that kind of environment, which would be, sounds like it would be so challenging. It, it was do. challenging in that, well, so like that, like Greenland, we were there, we were there in the summer. We were, I was in the Antarctic in the Antarctic's summer, which oh, of is course, January, because right. they're the other end of the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in Greenland, I was there in, in our summer because it's, you know, it's actually level kind of with Toronto-ish, although it's still much colder. <laughs> I mean, like it's it's in the northern hemisphere. Yeah. So both of those places I shot without gloves a lot of times, which is not to discount the cold when you're on the water on a boat that's moving. That's a whole different level of cold. So that was all handheld. There's no, there's no such thing as a tripod <laughs> when you're on, when you're on a boat, like that's just not happening. You, you learn the tactics. I mean, there's the thing about keeping batteries, you know, close to your body. And because I shoot with mirrorless, I'm using a much smaller battery than someone who say is shooting with a Canon or something like that. I uh, Canon cameras. So you learn about keeping the batteries inside your jacket so that if you have to change, batteries are very susceptible to cold. It drains them find, quickly, right? Yeah. Yeah, you'll find your camera drains much faster mm -hmm. when you're out in those temperatures. But because of the times of years that I'm hitting these places, it's generally hovering around three celsius maybe anywhere from three oh. celsius to minus four so cold uh, but not not brutal yeah and uh, which i mean when it's brutal you you do the best you can you you have big mitts on you have you know the stupid hats and all that <laughs> stuff you know you take the you take the off get the shot put your hand back in and and hope that you got whatever the hell you're shooting at but there are other times when you're what they call, you know, in the flow, when you're when you're in the zone, and it it, it wouldn't matter if it was minus forty. Right. You're just it's only you're so it's only afterwards you realize, right, when you've stopped. Yeah, when you got the frostbite. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully not. Yeah. yeah no. <laughs> So I have to just ask, because I know you hate this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway for all the budding photographers who might be listening. What kind of equipment did you bring up there? <laughs> what kind of little, camera do you use? Little, little equipment, just to go with my little me. <laughs> I, shoot, I shoot on mirrorless. I'm using the Panasonic Lumix system. I love my Lumix. I, I shoot with a GX8. 
I dare anyone to look at the work that I produce and say, oh, that wasn't shot with a full frame camera. Yes, and you know that when people start talking technical aspects of photography to me, my eyes glaze over. It's the kind of photography that I do. Anyone who's getting up close and talking about where the light falls off in my lens is obviously not getting <laughs> what I shot. <laughs> you know? um, it's, it's, a, it's a tool. It's a tool like anything. I mean, I've often used the analogy, you have, you have to dig a hole. Does it matter who makes the shovel? Yeah. No, as long and, as you get the whole dug. Yeah, no, you're, it's very true. It's the same thing with what kind of brushes and stuff. I mean, there, to a certain degree, there's a little bit of professional interest in terms of like, oh, do you like horsehair brushes versus synthetic brushes or whatever? And I'm sure it's the same thing with different types of lenses and stuff like that, too. But yeah, it always kills me when that's kind of, that really shouldn't be the first question someone asks an artist, right? Well, I mean, you start you start from learning. But I mean, earlier in the conversation, you talked about having to have some technical knowledge Obviously, you can't, you can't break the rules until you know what the rules are. You can't, you can't know about intentional camera movement until you know, okay, this is what my shutter speed, if I want to capture this, if you're panning or something like that, right. and you want that shot, the great shot of the, the motorcycle, you know, you want the background all blurred, but you want the, the front half of the motorcycle really crisp and the back half looking like it's been, you know, put through a blender. So the only way to, to know that is to be familiar with your camera. And the only way for people who are just getting into photography to learn that is to ask, what are your settings? What are you that? Once that becomes second nature to you once you stop thinking about those as an active part of the photography and and your thumb is just doing this and the fingers that and you're making the adjustments without even thinking about it that's where the art when the magic out. happens yeah yeah it's that's kind of like when I, stop I think it's the same as when when i'm I think for me, when I'm painting, sometimes I paint in a public environment, people walk in and went out and it's like, why did you put that there? And why did you do this? And why did you do that color? And you kind of, you're at that point where you can't really articulate it anymore because it just, it's like, just needed to be there. It needed to happen. You know, that shutter speed had to be that, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But then I also remind people, it, unlike your profession at my stage, there's 464 other images that came before that one that you don't see. And why the right. hell would I show you anyway? <laughs> yeah. It's ugly. I'm not hey, you know, it, it happens with art too. It's like, you know, those pieces that just got painted over. They never happened. Oh, God, I, you know, that's one of the things I envy about painters. At least you can paint over. I, <laughs> I can't cover those things. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, we have Photoshop. Yeah, if you really yeah, need no, to. No, no, I just, I just, I know you don't. I actually had a thing last year where one of my suppliers had changed one of their suppliers. I don't use them anymore because the, the canvas that they're supplying was turned to crap. Like it actually was blowing in the wind. Oh, geez. Uh, it was so, oh, it was so thin. It was horrible. You could see through it. And the only, the only way I could deal with that is quality control. I actually took red paint painted over the surface of one of my artworks to put it out for garbage to ensure that it wouldn't I don't want a Lori Ryerson out there that looks like a piece of trash. Yeah. Well, I, especially, I especially because, I mean, the difference too between just general hobbyist photography and fine art photography as well is that everything is tracked. It's one image is a certain 
uh, what's it called, series, right? Like, so you'd only do a certain number of each series, and therefore you don't want ones out there that aren't going to be consistent and perfect within your series. Well, and it was funny with that particular problem that happened, my kids had said to me, oh, just I, the, the first one came in and I'm like, oh my God, am I, am I the only one who's seeing what I'm seeing here? And my kids took a look at it and they said, oh, you know what, mom, just deliver it to the client. They're not going to know. And I did, I, but I, because I oh. knew the person. So I, I gave it to her and then I, it kept, literally, it kept me up. It kept I me bet. awake and yeah. I was really unhappy. So I ordered, that caused me to go back and find some new suppliers with whom I'm absolutely thrilled to find some suppliers that I love who were now, who are now supplying me with what these guys used to at a better price and a better quality. And I went back and I had the, the photo that I had done for her reproduced at my cost and went and called her and I said, listen, I don't know how to tell you this, but I gave you something that looked like trash that I'm not happy with <laughs> and I want to replace it. Well, when I took it to her house, she said to me, I'm really glad that you did. She said, especially now that I see them together. She said, you know, when I picked it up from you, I thought, oh, this isn't at all the way that I remember it. But I figured it was just me. Wow. And that's how you and that's how you lose a client. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, and totally if I agree. hadn't, if I hadn't said anything, if I hadn't gone back and gone with my instincts, which was correct this problem, where would we, I would never have heard from that client again, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think also it just, it's, it sits heavy on you, right? Like yeah. I've done that before where I was at the artist project one year and sold like a 36 by 60. So a big, big piece. I was really excited about it. I was going to deliver it the next day because it was really big. And then as I was looking at it, I noticed in the bright lights of the artist project, which is really almost like a false lighting scenario because nobody ever lights their art or their houses like that. But there was an oh. area. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> We'd all look at about 95 years old. But anyway, <laughs> a very unflattering light. <laughs> yes. But great for the art. But then I did, I noticed there was a little area where the resin was tacky. So it just for some reason hadn't cured properly. Oh, no. It was small. I'd had that painting for a couple of weeks and I hadn't noticed it. But the same thing, I kind of thought, I just can't let it go because it'll just annoy me, right? And so when I called her, she's like, well, we really wanted to see, have it up and we're really disappointed in the delay because it would be at least a week by the time you re-resonate and stuff. And I said, I hear what you're saying, but I just feel like I can't let it go like that. So she actually was pushing for me to deliver this one that was subpar. But in the end, I'm yeah. like, I have to sit with what's comfortable for me, so... Yeah, it's about the, the quality is important. If I'm putting my, if I'm putting my name on it, whether whether it's, you know, in the old days, if it was a business project, if I'm putting if my name is associated with it, then it has to, it has to hold up to my standards. I totally agree. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so. And so that's, I mean, that's kind of an interesting segue too into the fact that you know, when you, when you, a business life, you were doing corporate communications and I know a lot of event management, which is how we kind of connected, which is really super fun. Yeah. And there's a certain amount of expertise that you have to bring to the table on that. So what things do you think you've brought from the, from your kind of old world into your new world of the practice of art that's really helped you be successful? The main thing that, that follows me is the storytelling. When you're when you're in marketing and PR, what's your job? Your job is to tell stories about your product, whether your product is people, which was mainly, you know, that was your your product was an actual physical product. My product were humans because I was in nonprofit association management. And so the stories that you can talk about when I I think 
part of why people buy my work is because, well, as you say, you've been at shows, you've been beside me, you hear my stories and every image that I have, whether it's a macro, you know, a tiny little image up close or one of the big landscapes from the Antarctic or Iceland or Greenland or the desert, there's a story. The story is, it might be about what was it that attracted me to shoot it? Why did I go to that area? Why didn't I do this? What happened immediately afterwards? Why did I choose this in post-production? Any of that. These are the stories. And I actually did a... (laughs) I did a fun thing on my website. So because we can't do any shows this year because of COVID, thank you very much. You can't tell the stories anymore. I can't tell my stories. And I and I wanted yeah. to build a new website, which I have finally done, lauriryerson.ca, shameless plug. Um, <laughs> nope, we're and- getting that again, but that's fine. You can preempt it. <laughs> <laughs> Slip that in wherever I can. Um, and so what I did was I actually recorded... I took some of my images that I love the best, that I think I have the best stories about, and I created a page on my website called Back in a Flash, you know, about photography, and I tell the stories. So there are little audio files on my website now to be able to bring these stories. If I can't be with you in person right now, at least I can still share some of the stories. And that's very much something that came with me from the corporate world. Also things like the, the guarantee of service, the guarantee of, of quality. These are all things that you spend 30, 40 years in business. This is going to stick with you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. I love, I love your stories idea. Cause I think that is one of the biggest challenges with, with selling work online. Any work is that part of it is the piece of art you buy, but part of it is the artist and it's the connection and it's the story and the relationship that makes going to these art fairs and, art shows in real life so kind of so precious which we don't do right anymore so I just might steal your idea I just have to say <laughs> yeah I, I know <laughs> yeah well g- give me a little credit on your website then Absolutely. please see Lori's stories you yeah know? <laughs> hey so just a, just another curiosity how why Lori Ryerson.ca versus Focalocity which you've been for years so that was a that was a learn by experience. When I first created my company that was specific to photography, I created a name Focalocity that I thought would help people. It was, you know, Ocity as in velocity as in speed. In those days when I was still just first learning, I I'd gone back to school to learn about the craft of digital photography. And I thought, you know, maybe I might be doing portraits, uh, corporate headshots, or maybe I would be doing product photography or all of that. I still hadn't sort of found what I loved. And so I created this company called Focalocity. Focalocity is still my business name, but I discovered over the years that clever though it may be, People don't go looking for Focalocity. They go looking for the name of the artist. And they were yeah. looking for Lori Ryerson. So I, this past year, as I mentioned, I created an, a new website. Instead of being www.focalocity, it's www.lauriryerson. Focalocity is still, it's part of my logo because that's what I was known for for almost a decade. I have incorporated that as part of the logo in small letters to just help people over the transition. transition. Yeah. 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 So 
you know, it's, it's, as I say, it's still my corporate name. So business that's conducted things that I do, you know, if I take pictures of people's art, that's through the Focalocity side. You know, I, I don't brand those. Those are just done. That's a product shop. Yeah. Really. Well, and for people that don't know, so for a lot of painters will bring their work to Lori and you'll document them properly and color correct them and end up with really high res images, which is a really critical piece for an artist to have good images. So I'll do a plug yeah, for really. you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so any other, any other locations that you, you keep coming back to the icy ones. You've been funny. You, you see, well, no, I, I love, you know, I think part of it is cause I, I love the heat. So I, and I love the desert ones and your Joshua trees and stuff. And very sad that so many of those burnt down this year, which is just must be a heartfelt pain, but also glad that you were able to go and document them before they, got burned yeah a lot of the work that a lot of the nature photographers are doing right now we have while I don't do much in the way of wildlife anymore I used to do actually you know a fair bit of wildlife and certainly being in places like the Antarctic much of the focus down there is on wildlife on whales and penguins and sea lions and all of that kind of thing a lot of the work we've lost so many species in the mm -hmm. natural in in the natural world, along with loving our planet to death, we're also losing a lot of the animals. So a number of the photographers who are involved in the nature side of photography, as I am, a lot of this is documentary. Part of my the whole thing that started me into this pathway, the trip to Egypt, was because I jokingly said, Oh, I want to see the pyramids before somebody turns them into a condo. <laughs> Don't even say that. <laughs> I haven't got yeah. there yet. I'm still waiting. Uh, well, and you know what was so weird? Like I was, I thought I was joking and being clever. And when we got there, we're driving down the street in Cairo and I'm seeing these flashes go by in between the buildings and they built right up to the, the, the building of Cairo is now so close to where the pyramids are that I, that documentation of of what they were in the middle of the desert it's not it's not there anymore and so part yeah. of what a lot of us are taking the trip to greenland i wanted to see it before it's not greenland anymore before it's brown land yeah, yeah. Uh, you know before all of that ice melts we've we've lost a huge portion of the greenland ice shelf there were uh, there's already documentation of all the stuff that's been falling off of the antarctic this year Iceland, all of that, you know, all of that stuff. Even well, in the gla desert. glaciers that are not gla considered glaciers anymore because they're not big enough. Well, although a lot of, of the areas that we travel to, we were uh, similar to the the Antarctic trip. When I, when you're in Greenland, there are no roads, so the only way of getting around is by you're either flying or you're on a boat from community to community. And there were places that we went to. Our 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 driver, our boat guide. He's he's Dutch and he moved there uh, to Dusiak about 15, 20 years ago. And he said, 10 years ago, I couldn't, we wouldn't be like, he would pull us into these inlets and he would say, 10 years ago, you, there was no rock visible in any of this. You couldn't even get, there was no this, it was this, like there was no curve into right. a shoreline. It was a big glacier. And in the 10 years in just 10 years, we've lost so much. So a lot of the work that, that we're out there doing is documenting. There are some really amazing people out there who are 
like true true pioneers who've been living in lonely places by themselves going back year after year after year and documenting that work. Joe McNally, who I referenced earlier, did a, a documentary on a gentleman who has lived in, uh, it might be even Greenland. I can't, I, I'd have to go and search out the name of it, but, but he was, he, you know, he has documented the, the change in the bird, uh, have the habits of habitat, the natural. Yeah. 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 All of that. So Yeah. You know, you just, you get out there. <laughs> so where where is your next location once we can travel again? Oh, well, it, this year it was supposed to have been, I was supposed to be back in, in Utah. That went south and got put off for a year. Then I was supposed to be in Newfoundland. That uh, has been put off for a year. I was supposed to be going in just a few weeks to Death Valley again. I'll return to a very oh. beloved place after five years absence. That was supposed to be happening at the beginning of December. That's been put off, obviously. All of these have been pushed a year ahead, but we we have no idea. Who knows? Uh, in, the abs- in the absence of being able to go over to over the U.S. border, which is where, unfor- I mean, it, unfortunate in that so much of the gorgeous beauty in North America is on the other side of that border, Yep. Um, having said that, I made plans to go out in January to the area around Banff, but now with what just happened this week in Alberta, I have no idea if that's going to happen or not. I, nope. I know we still I'm have not, to be very flexible. Get flexible, yep. make no plane reservations until you're 100% sure, and keep going around the block with my macro lens, keep going to huts in the forest in Ontario. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Wherever, wherever I can get to that's, that's accessible. Well, it sounds perfect. So now I'm going to ask you my uh, question. I always ask everybody, what would your big hairy ass goal be? It doesn't have to be based in realism. <laughs> I would like to provide a retreat for women in art. That'd be cool. I'll sign up. Uh, my sense of so many of the women that I know who are artists, whether it's photography or visual art, so many of the women who are involved have so many things that pull them away from their art. And even though art is where their heart is, their heart first and foremost goes to their children or their animals or their whatever, their parents, you know, there's a their lot partners, of- partners, yeah. Yeah, all of the ob- that. The and obligations so, come before the feeding your own yeah, passion. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And unfortunately, in the world that we live in now, there is so little time that's ever given to women to really think. One of you asked me about my, my business, you know, how did the business, the, one of the most important things that I ever took from, from that group of guys was that they often created at least once a week a period in their calendar that was protected. No meetings, no phone calls, no nothing. The door is shut. This period on my calendar is protected. To think, to just take the time to think, is this where I want to be? Is this what I want to do? Do I want to take some new influences? Is there something that I could do that would change the art that I'm producing. And I don't think that especially women just don't, they often, how many times did you steal time away upstairs at two o'clock in the morning? Oh, absolutely. Right? Yep. Right? Yep. 
And I still feel that. I still have to, I feel like I have to get all my work done and my computer stuff done before I get to have the pleasure of going in the studio, even though the studio is really my, it's my business. Exactly. You know, yeah, you know people, right. people often say to me, oh, why don't, you know, why don't you take your husband with you when you go on these trips? Because who says that? that <laughs> That's a completely different you thing. Would be, you would be shocked <laughs> like, at the number of people which, who ask me that. Yeah, I and I say to them, do you take your wife to work? Yeah, exactly. This is my business. And without being able to give the time to really concentrate on it, as long as there's someone in my family around me, my concentration is not on my work. It's on making, yeah. that was part of that contract, right? I, I assume that the, the contract of having children, having a husband, having a family, having parents who are no longer with me, that, that this is all part of my contract as a human being. But in order to give my art and my, my business of art, my art as a business, my art as a creation, I, I got a clear space for that. Yeah, you have to make it happen. You have to be committed and, to it. And I know I so many women, you know, and I, and I don't mean this yeah. to be misogynistic. I'm, you know, guys, I'm not, I'm not slamming on you out there. It's just that this is the way that we're built. And yeah. so I would like to be able to provide a place to deal with that. I have no idea how that's going to happen, Kate, when it's going to happen. Let's work on it together. Yeah. That sounds like fun. It's just, it's just a, it's just a behag. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good hairy ass goal. I'm totally on board with you on that one. So we are, believably, we're actually almost at the end of our time. Cause I want to make sure we can record this. So tell us where can we find your art? What shows are you doing right now? What's your handle? What's your scoop? Handle on Instagram is at Focalocity, F-O-C-A-L-O-C-I-T-Y. My website is www.laurierierson.ca. Keep it simple. Doing shows, I am scheduled to do the Artist Project if that comes off. In the meantime, the local groups that I've been working up with here in North Toronto, North Toronto Group of Artists, and the Lawrence Park Art Collective, I've been doing some really fun and creative stuff. You know, we can't do our outdoor stuff in the winter, but stay tuned. We've been doing some Facebook live, quick and dirty 30 minute art shows. So watch my publicity for that. And just please, uh, further to what you said earlier, Kate, buy local. If you don't support local artists, you're going to see, you're going to, you're going to suffer for losing all of the local people. So please get out there, support living artists, buy local art. Don't give your business to Amazon this year. He's going to be just fine, okay? He's going yeah. to be just he will terrific. survive. <laughs> we but, may not. <laughs> you know, all of those folks who are out there making and creating right now, throw them some business. While you're doing takeout at your local restaurant, please uh, stop by and say howdy to an artist that you know and show them a little love. Okay. That's great words to end on. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> me. You, uh, and have it. a wonderful day. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much. And basically, uh, I reiterate what Lori said too about buying local. One of the things uh, right now is the one of a kind has about 750 um, artists and artisans, uh, which is a great place to go. I find sometimes it's a bit overwhelming to look at the one of a kind store. So they've actually set it up in aisles the same way as you would do if you were in person. So what I've been doing is just randomly kind of going, today I'm doing aisle M. And then I go and I look at all the artists at aisle M, which is kind of working for me. But anyway, thank you so much for joining me. Next week, Angela Lane is going to be joining me. So as you know, she's my co-conspirator in Creative Adventures. We're both doing the one of a kind. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we've kind of used digital. Not that we're experts, but we're working through it to really kind of increase our exposure 
uh, online. So hopefully we will uh, join us then.